Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service or at our main campus services on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. We hope you enjoy. And uh, today what I want to do is ask another question. If the resurrection is true, what does it mean for my life? Or rather, because I think we, we, uh, we, we, we studied the evidence a few weeks ago, because the resurrection is true, what are the implications for my life 2,000 years later? And so that's where we're going to hop in today. But before we hop into where I want to go, I'm going to give you guys a question. I just want you guys to turn and discuss. All right, here's the question. Um, I think I have a slide for you guys. Um, share a time when... Do I have a slide? Do I have a slide? Yeah, so share a time when... Um, or have you ever had one of those times when you are looking at an event, situation, decision, and you're viewing it one way and someone else sees it in a totally opposite way, all right? So I'm gonna give you guys like 30 seconds, turn to discuss with some people around you. Ready, set, go. All right, all right, all right, all right. So bring it on up. All right, truthfully, we've all had situations, right? You see one thing, the other person sees the other thing or something completely different, right? You're like, you told your friend, that guy's a loser, he's an idiot, he's a Chad, and he ended up being that, right? And you were right, whatever, right? We've all been in situations where you saw something the other person didn't see, right? I think one of the easiest ways to see this is in optical illusions, right? I think I have three of them. I think I've actually showed you a few of these before, but go to my next slide. All right, so immediately, here's what I, need, here's what I want you to see first. Immediately, who sees um, the woman? Sees the woman? Who sees the jazz player? Who sees neither? You're blind. Okay, uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, we'll pray for you later. Um, okay, right, so uh, uh, if you can see the woman, pretty easy, right? Um, the jazz player, he's facing this way, and he has a saxophone. You see him now? No, you don't see him? Okay, go cool. Uh, RJ, you don't see anybody? Uh, hi, RJ. Uh, all right, uh, all right, let me see the next one. This one's pretty simple. All right, raise your hand if you see, if you see the bunny first. Okay, four of you. Raise your hand if you see the crow or the bird first. Duck, whatever. It's a, what, what you, you're like, oh, it's a, a condor. It's a golden feathered condor. Uh, all right, so if you can't see the bunny, uh, the mouth is that way, the eyes in the center, and then the, the ears are back here. And then, and then the, uh, the what? The duck, the duck or condor or bald eagle is this way, and then uh, it's beak. You tracking? Cool, I just I feel like an idiot. All right, uh, go to the next one. All right, um, raise your hand if you see, like, the, uh, the old woman. All right, raise your hand if you see the young woman. Raise your hand if you see both. Oh, there's only a few of you guys. Okay, let's help you out. All right, so uh, the old woman, she's looking down this way, right? And then the young woman, um, she's looking like I'm looking right now with that chiseled jawline right here. Uh, <laughs> you guys see it now? You still don't see it? This should just be what we do tonight. I should just close in prayer. Uh, no, I'm playing. Um, all right, raise your hand if you see both now. You see both now. Perfect. All right, you can, you can take that down. We're distracting people. All right. Real quick, is it hot in here? Is it hot in here? Riley, do you know where the air conditioner unit is right behind there? Just crank that thing. Sick. Uh, crank that thing. Cringy. All right. Um, all right, here's the thing. I've always found it interesting, right? Well, how two people can see the very same thing and see entirely different things as they're looking at the very same thing, right? So some of you guys saw the woman. Some of you guys saw the old woman. Some of you saw the bunny. Some of you saw the duck. Some of you, whatever, right? Everyone sees different things when they look at something. But truthfully, I think perspective is really, really uh, 
important. And it unlocks a lot of things if you can gather um, a biblical or God-viewed perspective on things, right? I'll give you an example, right? Now, I think I've used this illustration before. Uh, a pastor named Tim Keller used this illustration on the power of perspective. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> uh, do I need to go over there? Are you good, dude? Or hell again? You got it? You got it? Heck yeah, dude. He's single. All right. Um, <laughs> actually, are you single? I don't know. Sick, dude. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Um, Perspective, right? So perspective is powerful. Tim Keller, uh, one of my very favorite authors, apologists, and pastors, he has this idea that he says, like, if you took uh, a couple, like um, a couple, like um, Rogelio and who he finds tonight, and you, uh, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, and so, and, and they were married, they're about to get married, or let's say they're married, right? And uh, you, you show them a room, and the room is his concrete walls, the concrete toilet, there's like a little, small, about the size of my Bible, um, uh, a window, right? And you showed them, and you said, this is a honeymoon suite. You'd be like, that sucks. That's a horrific honeymoon suite. But if you took the same couple and you just shifted their perspective by telling them something a little bit different, it changes everything. You took the same couple and you said, it's not a honeymoon suite, it's a jail cell. You're like, oh, that makes sense. That's what I expect the jail cell to look like, right? Not, a, not what I expect a honeymoon suite to look like, right? See, perspective changes things. The way that you interpret things has the ability to unlock certain things. That's what I want to talk to you guys about today. I want to look at, look at the resurrection through the perspective of because it is true, or if it is true, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for me years and years and years later? And so look, if you're an atheist in this room or someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection, um, just for tonight, and, and come talk to me after, but just for tonight, go with me that it is real, right? That this, this event actually happened. And so today I want to look at what does the resurrection mean for you and for me? And I'm going to teach a little different tonight. I'm going to give you the answer up front. Right up front, I'm telling you where we're headed, what we're going to be talking about, and that's this, that the resurrection offers you, and it offers me total life transformation. Most important part, comma, if. If you apply its implications. I'm going to say it again so we're all on the same page. If you've taken notes, you're going to, you're going to get tattooed this later. The resurrection offers total life transformation if you really apply its implications. Now, before we kind of discuss, right, the offer of total life transformation, you got to first kind of understand a problem. Like, yo, why does my life need to be transformed, right? Like, why does my life need to be changed, transformed, right? Well, um, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to go back in the past of the things that we've been studying through the book of Romans. I think all of my verses I'm going to talk to tonight are the book of Romans. And so if you've been with us for a while, um, a lot of this is going to be kind of overview. But it's important because Paul has a lot to teach us about the reality of the implications of the resurrection on your life and my life. If you were born today, if you were born a day after Jesus died, or you're born 3,000 years from now, whatever it may be. Paul's got a lot to teach us. And so today we're going to hop um, all around the book of Romans. Today we're going to start in Romans 7. It says this. Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. Amen. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, as it, as it, is it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is my sinful nature. For I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, this is rough. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. A lot of it does, it does whatever, right? So here's what Paul's saying, right? He's saying, look, like I realize that like, there's this internal kind of compass in me where I start to set certain standards. Don't do this, don't whatever, right? And then I realize like I don't even keep those things. Like I, I, I have certain like, like laws that I create artificially for myself. I should read my Bible more. You know what? I'm gonna try to read a book a month. I'm gonna stop spending 
eight hours a day on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is. I'm gonna start going to the gym. I'm gonna turn this keg into a two-pack, whatever it is, right? Um, I, I wanna st- stop eating in and out all the time. I wanna stop eating fast. I wanna insert whatever the standard of law is. I wanna stop dating idiots, whatever it is, right? And then you realize, I can't even keep my own standards. Like, I have a way that I think I should do life as an imperfect human being, and I can't even keep the standards that I am artificially creating for myself. It's kind of like we almost have like, like, a, like an angel and a demon, right? The angel's like, you know what you should do, and the demon's like, but do the other, you know, like whatever. And it's constantly kind of pulling us back and forth. The issue that Paul's talking about isn't necessarily knowledge. It's not that you don't know how you should live, but rather you can't. I'll give you an example of this, right? Um, do we, do, does anybody really need a book to tell you that fast food, um, eating it every day is probably not good and you should exercise more? I'll give you a perfect example of this, right? So there was a time where doctors were coming out, like literally, like not prescribing, but basically prescribing cigarettes to people. The crazy claims, like it'll help you lose weight, it's really good for your lung capacity, whatever it may be, right? There was a time 50 or 60 years ago that like smoking cigarettes was like seen as a health thing. Unbelievable to me, right? Like how, what? Like anyways, it somehow, I'm sure the doctors, they're just getting paid. There's no way they're that stupid. But anyways, right? There was a time, right, where, where those things were seen as good, right? But now today, you still see people smoking. My mom, my, mom's a, my mom smoked, and my dad, when he was alive, he smoked, right? And I remember when I first found out in D.A.R.E. Uh, you guys remember D.A.R.E.? No, you guys remember it because you did drugs. Ah, uh, no, I'm playing. Uh, like, you know the Red Ribbon Week, and they had, like, little things like, what, what, did, they, what did those little bracelets say? Do you remember? Like, I will never, ever, ever do drugs, you know, whatever. Uh, I will never inject heroin. Whatever the, whatever the thing said, right? And uh, I was like, I remember the police officer, like, was teaching about like the 127 different chemicals that are in cigarettes. And I was like, my mom needs to know about this. And so I went home and I was like, mom, cigarettes are gonna kill you. And she's like, all right. Like, and so I remember she wouldn't stop smoking. And so I used to get Sharpies and I would write like, like on, her, on her little marble, you know, uh, uh, cigarette box, the white little box. And I would say like, these, these will kill you. And like, I was just, I was perplexed by like, why isn't this information changing you? Like, that's how this is supposed to work, right? Now that you know this is bad, I thought I was teaching her something, you should change the way in which you now live. No, my mom knew. My mom knew that every cigarette she was smoking and still smokes is not good for her health. It's not knowledge she needs. None of us need a, I remember when I was in school, I didn't need another teacher saying, come around beside me and go, Matt, you need to study more. I knew I needed to study more. I just didn't want to study, right? Or uh, when I was drinking or whatever it was, uh, I knew it was bad for me. Right? I didn't need someone to come around and say, like, now your liver is, you know what, I, I, I knew, I knew it wasn't good, right? I mean, can you imagine if it was knowledge, if, if what we really needed was knowledge, not the volitional will to change? Like, imagine as a pastor, my job would be so easy. If I just came up on stage and looked at all of you and said, hey, look, you, you need to stop doing this, that, or the other thing, and you need to start doing this, that, and that. And then you went home and you looked yourself in the mirror and you said, now Rebecca, whatever your name is, stop it. You're going to stop this, that, or the other thing. And then your life was completely changed. No, the problem is not that you don't know what to do, it's that you don't know how to do it, right? That there is something in you, no matter how much you believe, you should do something that we still can't do it, right? That's why you and I have had these nights, right, where you wake up in the morning so disappointed in yourself, thinking, how am I still addicted to, insert whatever it is? You wake up, whatever, and you're just disappointed. How could I give in to that again? What is wrong with me? I know better. See, the truth is, the truth is that there is something inside you that wants to destroy your relationships, your finances, your health, all of your relationships and practically everything about us. And the Bible gives us terminology, a framework, a, a language to describe what this reality is. And the Bible gives us the language, the word sin, the concept of it. It teaches us more that rather you and I have inherited this thing called sin, this, this infectious disease like COVID, whatever it is, and it's, it, it, is, it is inherited, passed down. 
Think of it this way, right? We all have a heritage, and that is that we have inherited certain things from our family. Now, let's be real. Some of us have inherited some pretty good things from mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, whatever. A great worth ethic, keen intellect, caring heart, relational skills. You are good with money. Others of us, we've inherited some pretty negative things from mom and dad, some family of origin issues, right? Uh, you have a temper like your dad. You're passive aggressive like your mom. You are avoiders like your grandparents. Um, you're not good with money um, because mom and dad weren't good with money, whatever it may be. See, Paul says that the thing that makes you do what you know you shouldn't do is this thing that's been inherited. But it's also, it's more than just a disposition, uh, an orientation to do wrong. He teaches us that it's actually worse than just this disposition's orientation. It actually is far worse than that because it completely has disconnected and made you fundamentally wrong. It's connected you from God and made you wrong. Right, so he says once upon a time, right, there was a guy named Adam and a girl named Eve. And they disobeyed God, and in, in, in their disconnecting from God, sin entered into the human story, the equation. And so what was true of Adam and Eve now becomes true of us. And so he teaches us that the bad news is that there is no cure this side of heaven, but the good news is that heaven came down to us to be a cure. See, in Romans 7.25, um, Paul says this, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Paul is saying the answer why the resurrection is good news for you and I is because it teaches us that Jesus Christ is the only one who has the ability to deliver us from sin that we are so caught in. And then in Romans 6.3, he says this, don't you know that all of us who were baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And when you think of baptism, right, you think of being dunked underwater or whatever, right? His idea of baptism is actually so much more poetic and beautiful than just you going like, do you believe in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? Dunk, dunk, dunk. Yes, that's important, right? But, but it's actually so much more than that. The, the waters are representative of something, the time in which you were underwater and you come up. The whole process is, is symbolic, it's metaphoric, and it's important. Because it's more than, like I said, just being dunked in water. What Paul really is talking about when he's speaking of baptism is to be put something into something else. Baptism is symbolic for putting something into something else. Let me kind of reword this verse for you. It's this, don't you know that when you first started following Christ, you gave your life emphatically to him, you, I, we were placed into him and out of Adam. Baptism is symbolic for that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were grafted, adopted, placed in Jesus's family. You were taken out of Adam's family, placed into Jesus's family. And now what was true of Jesus is true of you. But up until your moment in which you have volitionally given your life over to Jesus Christ, what was true of Adam and every person that's ever lived since Adam, what was true of Adam now becomes true of them, us. Adam, what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 onward? Well, you kind of see this, they start hiding from God, distancing themselves. It was the woman, it was the woman that caused me to do this, that, or the other thing, right? They start blaming each other and they start hiding from God. So Adam was now separated from God, literally hiding from him, which is the stupidest and craziest thing ever, right? He's God incarnate, God in, God in Abad walking around in, in the garden, and Adam's hiding behind some ficus tree, and he just created everything, and he's like, of course I see you, like, you idiot, like, you're right there. You know, like, he's hiding from him, right? And God asked such an important question. He goes, Adam, where are you? Now, do you think God didn't know where Adam was? It's like when I play hide and seek with my daughter. I, like, put the, like, I put the thing right here, and, like, you know, like, and then, or she, then she'll do it. I mean, she's 14 months, right, but she'll hide like, I can see her. She's literally right next to the couch. I can see her, right? That's Adam and Eve. They're like literally hiding behind a bush. And he's like, are you kidding me? Like, why did God ask the question? Why would God, who sees all and knows all, ask such a silly and trivial question? It wasn't because he needed to gain knowledge. Say, I'm over here. It was because Adam, he wanted Adam to know what Adam now, where Adam now was, disconnected and separate from God. 
What was true of Adam now becomes true of everybody. God is the author and the sustainer of life. If you've disconnected and separated yourself from the author and sustainer of life, you get death, decay, destruction. Disconnecting and hiding now from the very author of good. When Adam became a slave to sin, he inherited a disposition or, uh, yeah, a disposition to do wrong, and now it was actually separate from God. There's two things. Everyone after him became a slave to their sin. Or when Adam became lost, everyone after him became lost in the world around them. In a nutshell, right, Scripture teaches us that because of Adam and Eve, and because we are related in some capacity and way, at least spiritually to them, and yes, even um, biologically, I'm going to talk about that later. It's called mitochondrial Eve. But anyways, but when um, you and I place our faith in Christ, you're taken, like I said, out of Adam's family. You're grafted into Jesus's family. And now what is true of Jesus becomes not true of you. Which, by the way, we could stop and I could just give another sermon here. That's what makes the gospel good news. With the gospel, the, the Greek euangelion, the reason why it is such good news is because what was true of Jesus Christ, even though you do not deserve it and we still don't deserve it, what was true of him and now can possibly be true for you through the medium of faith. It's where the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in him is transferred and accredited into your account. Romans, what does it say? For while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And so now what's true of Jesus is now true of us through the medium of faith. Jesus was connected to God. You can be connected to God. Jesus was not a slave to sin. You don't have to be a slave to your habits and addictions of your old life either. We'll talk about that in a second. Jesus knew his purpose. You can know your purpose. And so the question you're asking, right, is, okay, well, how is this all possible? How can the resurrection do all of this? How can Christ deliver me from all of this? I'm just going to teach you two things really quick. Number one, Christ's death and resurrection atones for our sin and makes us right with our creator. It's a theme that we've been talking about in the book of Romans. I'm going to say it again. Christ's death and resurrection atones for our sin and makes us, I'll make it simple, righteous. So let's break apart one of the words here. We broke apart righteous all the time in a right relationship with God, but let's talk about atone. The word atone simply means to make amends, to reconcile, to bring into unity, and to restore what is wrong. Now, what this means is that Christ's death and resurrection makes what was wrong between you and God right, because Jesus was willing to pay the debt that you owed before God because of your sin against him. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Let me give you an illustration, though. So imagine that someone, and I've given, I think, this illustration before, but it's kind of a sad illustration. You go home today, and someone has murdered your family. Terrific including your goldfish. It's terrible, right? And uh, you have ring cameras set up all over the house or whatever it is. And with the most certainty the law affords us, you can almost guarantee that this was the individual that came into your house and killed your goldfish and and your cat and everything else, right? And your younger, whatever. (laughs) And there's DNA evidence and people saw him leaving the crime. And and with just the most certainty the law can afford, it's pretty sure that this was the individual that did it, right? And so... The, the trial comes, and uh, the lawyers are doing their thing, and the judge is hearing it. And it's like, man, like, it's overwhelming, right, that this person did this atrocity, this injustice against you and your family. And so the judge hears the case and says, I believe you're guilty. I think the evidence indicates and points to a way in which it says you are guilty of the crimes that, um, that are listed. And then the judge just goes, but you're free to go, Right? you'd probably purchase a gun. That's probably what you would do, right? Like, like you're like, that, that, there's something about that you would know that that's not just. Like, that's not right. That, that wouldn't be just or right. This individual has broken a law, done an terrible injustice against you, and now deserves a punishment and consequence. That would be the righteous and just and moral thing to, moral thing to happen. 
See, you and I, on a human level, understand that with our imperfect sense of justice. Our sense of justice comes from us being made in God's image, who himself is a perfect judge and has a perfect sense of justice. The problem is that Scripture teaches us in Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23, all fallen short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin are death. There's not one that's perfect. The Bible tells us that you and I, we have violated God's perfect law by breaking any of the, let's say this to the Ten Commandments, even the 625 laws in the Old Testament. You and I, time and time again, Scripture is trying to teach us one thing. By the way, the Bible is never meant to be a uh, a binocular, right? Binoculars to like look at the sins of other people or a scope to like judge people. It's meant to be a mirror, right? To like just see like, like a makeup mirror. So you see all your imperfections. That's what it's meant. It's meant to humble you and I, right? Whenever I read the words of Jesus or just scripture, and I just go, I'm not that good of a person. Like I kind of suck. And so the Bible teaches us the reality that you and I, we're not perfect and that you and I have violated God's law. And therefore, if we have violated and broken a law, what do we deserve? What is the consequence when you violate or broken a law? A punishment, a consequence. And so what makes the Bible such good news or the message of Jesus Christ? I've heard a lot of students ask this question. Okay, well, why? I guess I can see that I'm guilty. I've lied, I've lusted, I've stolen, I've done this, that, or the other thing. Um, okay, but why did Jesus, like, die? Or how could he die on behalf of me is a better question. And I'll explain it this way, and it's, those of you guys that care, it's called vicarious penal substitutionary atonement. You can go Google that later. But anyways, um, I'll give you an illustration that, that kind of makes sense. So imagine that I, uh, I, uh, I punch, let's go with RJ. I just lay him out, which is a super realistic thing that's gonna happen after service, right? So he's out in the parking lot and uh, I just lay him out, right? And he's just there, arms all cropped, right, right. And I just, I'm like, and then I like, I go like, I gotta get my wits with me and I go, I go over to Rahelio and I go, dude, my bad. Like sometimes I just get antsy and I just, you know, whatever, right? Now everyone in the audience would be like, <laughs> first off, I'm faster to deck somebody, that's super weird, right? I'm probably not coming back here, right? But you would also go like, wait, Rahelio can't forgive me for something I did against RJ. That's kind of silly, right? Who's the only person on the planet that could forgive me for that injustice? It's not Rahelio, it's not Chris, not Brennan. It's one person, RJ. Why? Because the offense that I made was against RJ, and therefore he's the only one that can offer me forgiveness. Likewise, this is why Jesus himself, this is why Jesus himself, he's all flexing, uh, your 12-inch arms. Uh, I'm playing. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is why Jesus, man, we're getting sidetracked. Uh, Jesus alone said that he could forgive sin. Track with me here. Because he is God, and so when he says he can forgive sin, is because sin is an offense against who? God. Therefore, he's the only one that can say, you're pardoned, you're forgiven. Every other religion says, God, God told me to tell you that you're forgiven, that you have the possibility of can be forgiven. Christianity is the only one where he showed up and said, I can forgive you because all sin is an offense against me. Therefore, I'm the only one that can offer you forgiveness. And so I, as the judge, because I am a perfect judge and someone has violated something, have to pay the cost. I am willing to pay the cost. And so Christianity is beautiful in the sense where it's the judge in his robe with his gavel hitting it and saying, you are guilty, and then taking off his robe, holding uh, and dropping his gavel, walking down the steps over to the electric chair, and it says, and I will take the punishment that's rightfully yours. That's beautiful. And so the second thing that I want you guys to know about Easter, or rather about the resurrection, is it simply means that you and I can be spiritually reborn. I want you to go with me to the book of John. If you have a Bible, go with me, John chapter 3. And if not, I, uh, I have it up on the Sky Bible behind me. <laughs> 
It says this. So let me kind of, actually, before we hop into it, let me kind of give you a little bit of context here, right? So uh, John chapter 3, right? Jesus and Nicodemus, two characters in the story. You may not know who Nicodemus is. Um, if you ever wear Nikes or if you heard the company Nike, they got the word Nike from this guy's name, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Nike, uh, it means the conquering one. Nicodemus was the dude, right? He was the Ben Shapiro of the ancient world where they, where, where they brought people in and he was just squash arguments on college campuses. That's, that's who Nicodemus is, right? And uh, he was the guy that the Jews would send in um, to squash any heretical uh, uh, grouping, whatever it was. He was a really intelligent person. And there's a few things I'll, I'll stop. I'll just read it together, and then, then I'll add some commentary. Follow with me. John 3, verses 1 through 7. There was a man named Nicodemus, the conquering one, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Who are the Pharisees? Top tier of the Jewish society, right? We don't, really have, they don't, we don't have them in Protestantism, but if we were Catholic and I was a priest um, and there was a confessional over there... Uh, what this, like, it would basically be like bishops and like the Pope. That would basically be the Pharisee, right? Really high up. But in, in Protestants, we don't have it. Anyways, um, after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Now, I've heard a lot of pastors teach this incorrectly, and not, not, not that I'm more intelligent, I just picked up a commentary. Um, people think like, oh, Nicodemus is cowering because he went at night. Everyone in the ancient world, especially at this, were day laborers. So if he was doing this during the day, you know who wouldn't be there? 98% of the people. So he's doing this at night, Nicodemus, to make a scene. Why? Because that's when Jesus would have his largest audience. He's not cowering. He's not like, I'm trying to like, like slowly walk up to Jesus. He's doing it and screaming at Jesus when he has his largest audience here. He came to speak to Jesus. Rabbi, I also need you to hear this like, like a 13-year-old teenage girl talking back to their mom or dad, all right? Rabbi, right? He said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, now again, sarcasm. Now, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? Exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Which is like a, what's up? Uh, dang it. Fire. All right. Um, I hated you. I'm sorry, guys. How can we old man go back? Oh, yeah. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of, it's still here. Got it. All right. All uh, right. How can an old man go back to his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when you say you must be born again. Here's what Jesus is saying. Track with me here. Being born again means you go through a major and profound change. Being born again means you, I, the believer, goes through a major spiritual, major and profound spiritual change. Right? How, think of it this way. How, how much does a baby change inside their mother's womb? It starts off looking like a ninja turtle, and it, and it comes into you and I, right? It's unbelievable, right? Like, like I remember going in, like, with, my, with my wife when she was pregnant with Noelle and, um, like, getting to see, like, Noelle and, and, her, and my uh, wife's stomach, and they have, like, these crazy, like, like, now they have a machine that does, like, 3D digital scan. It's unbelievable. It's like you can see the face. You're like, this is nuts. Like, this is crazy, right? Like, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 15 years ago, they didn't have this technology, right? Um, the 3D scan. And it's unbelievable, right? And so Jesus is saying, like, there are huge and profound changes that happen as a human being grows in their mother's womb. And what he's drawing and connecting and paralleling to is to actually have a relationship with God. You need to have a change as dramatic as the change that happens in a mother's womb spiritually. Now, you need to understand that Jesus is talking to, like, the, the Jewiest Jew of Jews, right? Like, the top Jew, right? Like, the Dennis Prager of the ancient, the top Jew, right? The guy, right? And this is extraordinarily offensive, and it goes right over Nicodemus's head. Like, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. But here's what's crazy. Nicodemus, eventually, you find his story, 
in the Easter story in John 18, 19. Um, he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, him and a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Um, they, they, uh, uh, that's a different message. Okay, anyway, so th- he comes to faith in Christ, but that's chapters and years later. But what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is incredibly offensive because here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. I want you to hear this. You in your natural state are born condemned, separated, and offensive to me. And there is nothing that I can do with you as you are. You need to be fundamentally made new at the deepest level. Just like a baby cannot change their DNA, you cannot change your spiritual DNA or your fallenness in God's eyes. But it also means, right, that you and I are fundamentally wrong. It means that our minds, it means that our hearts, and it means that our wills don't interpret and feel things correctly. This is important. We're talking about something called the fallenness of man or total depravity for those of you guys that care about theology. And here's what this means for you and me. It means that there are things that may feel right to you that are not right. This is important. I need you to, I need, there are things that may feel right to you, but that are not actually right. There, are may, there may be things to you that sound right, but may, may not actually be right. And what this means is that you and I may have desires and impulses, thoughts, emotions, or whatever they may be, that are not actually right. I've heard a lot of people say things like, well, they're born that way. And insert whatever it is. Um, they were born with a promiscuous desire. I had a buddy in high school um, that like seemed to, like he needed to sleep with a girl like every other weekend. Like it was unbelievable. Like I was like, by, by the end of high school, he slept with like 29 girls. In the, unbelievable, right? <clears throat> or, uh, well, they're born gay. But if what Jesus is saying is true, it could possibly, and by the way, someone potentially could be born gay. I've read all, this, all the literature and there's no scientific ev- evidence that that could potentially be the case, by the way. But anyways, um, if what Jesus is saying is true, then what he's saying is, yeah, you were born wrong. All of you, not just those with the desire for this, that, or the other thing. Every person that has ever lived, everyone has desires that are wrong, impulses that are wrong, thoughts about God that are wrong, all of it. They're born wrong. And they have desires that are not right. So often I've heard you know, students in, they think, say things like, well, it sounds like Christianity is just this big game of Simon Says, where Jesus is a buzzkill and doesn't want us to act on, on the desires that we want, right? Whatever it may be. Could it be that that's not really who God is, but rather because we want to act on desires, our likes, our impulses, whatever it is, we see Christianity as a bunch of things that God is not for rather than a list of things that he actually is for, right? Really what most people want is a God fashioned to their own image that says, yeah, chase whatever desires are yours. Jesus says, I need to change every single desire that's yours. By the way, this is why most people don't ever cross the line of faith. They think they know what's best. No, I think I know what career I should do. In my 19 years of living, and the last nine of them were drunk, whatever, right? Um, I think, like, I really know, like, what I should do with my life. I think I know who I should, like, sleep with and give, create soul-level connections with. I think whatever it is. Most people are not willing to admit, fundamentally, I don't know what, I don't, I I have a compass that just keeps spinning. I don't, I, I need to be made new. Most people are not willing to get on their hands and knees and say, Lord, all that I am for all that you are, all of me, it's broken. It needs to be regenerated. It needs to be restored. It needs to be given to you. I want you to see your relationship with God like I see my relationship with my dog. <laughs> Let me explain. And I think I've given this illustration before. So my dog Zara, a little corgi, and uh, she do, started doing this weird thing a few years ago, and she doesn't do it always, but sometimes she does. Um, she, like, never used to, like, run after trucks. 
But randomly, like one day I was walking her, and it was like the weirdest thing. I was like walking her on the sidewalk, and like this like UPS truck went by, and she just freaking like, you know, like, and it went like, you know, like, she like, and I had to like pull her back, you know? And there was like a season where she just continued to do this. Like every time we'd take her on a walk, scratch that, my wife would take her on a walk. Um, you know, she would like try to bolt off to her death. It was like just the weirdest, like, it was just the silliest kind of thing. See, the truth is, the leash allows her to live her best life, to flourish. The leash tethers, to her, tethers her to what is good, safe, and wholesome, and that is the love of her owner. See, the same is to be said about when God says, hey, those desires that you have, those impulses, those thoughts, those emotions, what, they're dangerous. They're going to lead you astray. So when God says, look, don't have sex before you're married, it's not because he's like against like Tinder or whatever. Like he's not because he's, not, he's, not he's, he's not, God created sex. The male and the female reproductive system placed the very pleasure synapses and nerve endings in those things. And so when God says, look, don't, don't, don't have premarital sex, uh, and look, be sober-minded. Don't, don't do anything that alters your consciousness. Look, don't, don't watch pornography. It's going to rewire your brain. It isn't because God is a killjoy. Rather, he is for our human flourishing, and he knows those things will poison you and lead you, number one, astray, and then two, to a less than life. And so Christ comes, and through his death and through his resurrection, he says, you can be spiritually reborn. And that means that your soul, that your desires, all of it can be regenerated can be restored, can be renewed, and finally reconnected to God like they should have always been. I want you to follow with me in Romans 6. This is where uh, Paul continues. says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Here's what he's saying. Your old self with those infected desires when you were related to Adam can be put to death when you are grafted into Jesus' family. And what this means is that the sins, the habits, the thoughts, the lies, whatever it may be of your old life don't have to impact the new life in Jesus Christ. But you have a question, because I do. Why am I still wild now? Why do I still act like a fool? Why do I still think things? Why am I still addicted to X, Y, or Z? Whatever it is, right? Paul's saying the same thing. Look, I'm continuing to do what I know I shouldn't do, even though I know what I should do, whatever it may be, right? And... The only way I can answer this, I think, is an illustration that I heard once. Imagine that you live in a kingdom in which you are a slave, and your master controls every facet of your life. Now, one day, a king comes and takes over that kingdom and takes over the whole land and frees you. In fact, this king has now grafted and allowed you to be a part of his royal family. You now have inherited all of his blessings and all of his benefits and all the opportunities that now comes from being in a royal lineage to a king. But you, I, we decide, well... I kind of like being a slave. This is all I've known. This is what's easy to me, whatever it is. So you continue to let the, the old king or whatever it is rule over you. Even though you and I, we have the ability to live with a new inheritance, you choose the old. See, what Christ says is the same is true when it comes to sin in our lives. It is no longer our master, yet we continue to choose it because of Christ, you and I don't have to. Let me give you two thoughts that make me think of this. Don't want to think of the good news. See, studies show that a huge percentage of Americans believe uh, that Jesus raised from the dead in our country, um, that uh, he was God's son and that he was divine. It means he was God. The bad news is, though, you can say you believe all those things and yet nothing about your life or your eternity can change if you don't accept the implications of that reality. You know, James said, faith without works is dead. And he's not talking about, like, you need to go help grandmas across the street. That's not what he's talking about. Faith without works is dead. 
It means to not act on a belief means you don't actually believe it. I'll give you an example. Imagine you saw a building that you saw that you really wanted to go in, let's say, and the building was about to be condemned um, because it was falling on itself in some capacity in some way, but structurally it was unsafe. All over the building were signs that read this, danger, you will die if you enter into this building. Now, if you're an intelligent, wise, discerning individual, you would not enter. But why? Because your beliefs that there is danger ahead would inform and change your beliefs, your actions, and your attitudes. Right? It would not be enough to say, or rather just to give that lip service. In other words, yeah, 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 I know it's dangerous, but I'm still making my way in, right? Now, you can hold a belief up here and go, I know it's dangerous, but as you step into that building, you actually are communicating that you don't actually believe that it's as dangerous as it says it is, or you're extraordinarily foolish. See, you would actually have to apply that knowledge and manifest that into an action by not going into that building to actually save your life. Here's the question. Could the same or similar be true about Christianity? I wonder how many people just give lip service to their faith, but don't actually live it out like it's actually true. I think it seems that Paul would... That, would know that you and I or the people would have an indication to give their faith lip service, not volitionally make the change to live like it's actually true. In Romans 10, 9, it says this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God had risen from the dead, you will be saved. As we get to wrap up, I just want to talk to two people here. Uh, the first is the atheist, right? You're here for whatever reason. I'm hyped you're here, um, or you have a friend that's an atheist. But if you're here today and, and, and you, like, you don't still believe in anything we talked about today, you don't believe in Jesus, whatever it is. Look, I just want to, it all hinges upon the resurrection. Christianity is unique because it doesn't hinge necessarily upon a book. It hinges upon a historical event that can be looked through at the lens of history and ask the question, did it actually happen? And so if you're here today and you don't believe what we believe, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Come talk with me later. But I just implore you to look at the evidence. Go on our podcast. Listen to the last uh, two-week sermon, uh, two weeks, two-week ago sermon where we talked about that. The next I want to talk, I, I named this person kind of the atheist Christian, the Christian atheist or so. This is the person here tonight that maybe grew up in church and uh, uh, has kind of fallen out of alignment with God's will, for whatever reason. But like, you knew the Bible, you, you know, Becky in second grade baptized you, whatever it was, right? And you've just kind of fallen out of alignment with living the life that you know you're supposed to live. There's a disconnect between your knowledge and your action, your volition. I guess my advice and what really kind of helped change my life was that the resurrection, it actually demands that we get an eternal perspective on things. Right, that we need to see our life as eternal instead of finite, like this really is all that there is. If you could get to see things as God sees them, I think it motivates us out of apathy to live the life that we want to live and realize that there's more to life than even the 60, 70, or 80 years that we're going to experience here. C.S. Lewis, a famous theologian and author, he says this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most of the present world, precisely those who thought most of the next, it says Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, in other words, to gain a God-sized perspective on things, and even on, um, uh, on the human life, that they have become so ineffective in, in, this, in this world, in this life. I heard an illustration that I really liked by a famous pastor named Francis Chan, and it was in like 15 or 20 years ago, and he did this interesting thing where he, standing on a stage, he had a white rope that went all the way out of his, um, his auditorium, his facility, and at the end of the white rope was just a, about a, red, a little piece of red tape wrapped around the white rope, about that, about two, three inches maybe. And uh, he, sent, he gives us an illustration. He goes, look, if this, this is you, the red is the human part of you that will live 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years if you take your vitamins, right? Whatever. And the white represents your eternity. How many of us are just focusing on the red? 
I, I, need to, I, need to, I need what kind of car am I going to drive right here? What college am I getting into? I need to make this amount of money. I need to save so I can go on this vacation. I want to live here. I want to have these opportunities. Um, everything needs to work out. As I, as I, and we're all, all of our energies are focused on just the little red. But if you could step back and get a God-sized perspective on it, you'd realize, well, that's kind of silly. Like, to focus everything on the comfort of this, the opportunities for this. The resurrection demands that you wake up and stop being so, so concerned about the insignificant and stop living for this little sliver that's here and start living for eternity. So you get one chance at this life and, and then comes eternity. So don't be fooled, don't be consumed by the finite materialistic things of this world. You know, in history, people would often ask Christians and say, like, look, you guys are kind of crazy, right? Like, you, why would you live like the way that you live, not live promiscuously? Um, a famous quote from an ancient um, observer of Christianity. Um, he said that uh, pagans, and by pagans, he meant non-Christian people, um, they use their money conservatively, and they live promiscuously, right? especially with their sexuality. But he said for Christians, they are promiscuous with their money. In other words, they're just handing it out to people, and they live they live conservatively, sexually. They don't give their body out, right? So all throughout the ancient world, they look at Christians and go like, yes, that still makes sense. Like, what you guys are doing with your time and your money and on your gifts and all of that, like, why would you pass up on opportunities? Uh, if you were here this weekend, you may have heard of a story of Cody or his grandfather, Buddy, um, passed up promotions to make hundreds of thousands of more dollars because it was gonna disconnect him from his home church and the people that he was doing life with. The world looks at it and goes like, that looks stupid, Move to Tennessee ASAP, whatever, right? Like, those are the opportunities are. That's where you can get your 401k. That's where you can get a house, whatever it may be. And the world's looking at Christians not doing things like that. And they're going like, that's perplexing. Why? It's because Christians aren't living for this world. But the more important thing was, I think it provided Christians in the ancient world an opportunity to look back and say, but you're just living for this tiny little sliver that's right here. And we're living for eternity. Who actually sounds crazier in the large scheme of things? So here's the deal, Right? To wrap up, here's what I want you to know. The resurrection of Jesus Christ offers us a free gift, but it also issues you and I a challenge. The first is a gift. The gift is that you can have a relationship with your creator. It's a gift that no other religion makes the claim that it can do. And they can save you from your sin. And then finally, a challenge. It's to know that this world isn't all that there is, and you need to start living in accordance with that actual belief. Because head knowledge that has not made its way to heart knowledge is useless. It will not save you. Faith without works is dead because you don't actually believe it. And so how would that change you? Well, maybe you didn't get into the college you, you didn't want, you, you, you didn't get into the college that you wanted to go to. Okay, I'm gonna hold that with an open hand believing that God is still, that's not part of my little red sliver. Okay, God's gonna take that and, gonna, and it, those weren't opportunities for me. Maybe you didn't get the job you wanted within an eternal perspective. It's pretty insignificant. I don't know, maybe she left your DM on red, whatever it is, right? Like <laughs> semi-insignificant, okay? More fish in the sea, whatever it is, right? Whatever it is, right? An eternal perspective helps us keep the long view in mind and frees us from worrying about temporal and significant things. We pray for you guys and pray that over us. Put your arm around somebody and I'll be up here if you have any questions. Lord God, I, I thank you so much for the resurrection, not because it just is an incredible story that happened within history and because it's true, but God, because it offers us a complete and total life transformation, not just this side of heaven, um, but also for eternity. But Lord God, I ask that you would just... Help us answer this question with volitionally within our heart. Because the resurrection really happened, what does it mean for me? The implications are incredible. It means that we can be reborn, spiritually regenerated. Our, our emotions, our wills, our desires can be aligned with yours because of your Holy Spirit gifted to us because of Jesus.
So Lord God, I ask that you would help us garner and gain a God-sized perspective, an eternal perspective on the finite world. Help us start living and storing up our treasures in heaven, not on earth where rust and moth destroy. And will you help us set our mind on you where you're seated above? Lord God, I ask that you would continue to encourage us and spur us on to good things. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scdchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.